Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Kelly Robson. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Marie Bellado. And you've tuned into a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes with... 20 Minutes With is an opportunity to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft in our never-ending quest to improve our own. It is a never-ending quest. A never And dear friends, coming to us live from Columbus, Ohio, uh, uh, Marie Billado uh, checking out the fabulosity that's happening at World Fantasy Con. Marie, with a con like that going on around you, I am so very grateful that you were able to make the time and join us, ma'am. Oh, I wouldn't miss this for the world. Are you kidding? Even with all the awesomeness here, I would not miss this awesomeness because we have Kelly Robson today and I would not miss that. It's so true. It's so true. Or you. Or you. I don't want you to feel unloved here. <laughs> That's okay. I'm the host. I, I Love is default. It's it's kind of just the factory setting here. So It is understood. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Well, sit back in your in your sumptuous hotel room there at it uh, at World Fantasy Con and, and let me regale you with an introduction of of your friend and our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. May I? Yes, please. I very much look forward to it. Excellent. I do too, actually. These are always lots of fun. Well, (laughs) friends, I have done roughly a hundred of these intros, uh, and that's really, when you consider it, a pretty comprehensive data set from which to draw conclusions. And really, when you think about it, part of the reason I do these things, and I assume part of the reason you listen, is to examine the backgrounds of successful writers and see if we're doing it right. Uh, And if we're not, then maybe there are some patterns that emerge that we can use as a a kind of template to get ourselves on track. We're, We're kind of looking for like a silver bullet or that one right way for everything to make sense, right? Well, I'll tell you, in in stalking uh, or researching our guest host for this introduction, uh, I I may have found something that will help, but let's just get into it. Um, Hers was not a childhood of abundance and plenty. Uh, Growing up in Hinton, Alberta, Canada, there was but one television station, CBC, but at least that allowed her to watch the original Battlestar Galactica. Also, books were in dreadful short supply, uh, so those tales that she was able to lay her hands upon were read and reread with great reverence. She loved stories, but she also loved horses. And, and I don't mean just like reading stories about horses and putting pictures of horses on the wall. She was serious about her affection for these majestic creatures, becoming deeply involved in the rodeo circuit. Now, if she wasn't rodeo royalty, then she was certainly part of the royal court of the rodeo scene. Now, at the age of 10, she actually wrote a book about horses called Born Wild, complete with illustrations. And I can only assume that this moment when she could alchemically combine two of her greatest loves was a foundational one for her. And that was followed almost immediately by her adapting C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle for a one-act play. Ha ha! Ha ha ha! Theater rears its head once again in the background of a writer. What a shock, right? 
Uh, now, her high school experiences mirrored many of ours, or at least mine, uh, a life of existing on the fringe of what appeared to be normal and conventional social circles. However, that theater experience from sixth grade apparently struck a chord because high school theater was a major part of her young creative development. She even went so far as to be involved in the local community theater, appearing in such classics as My Fair Lady, Grease, and West Side Story, the sort of universal triumvirate of musical theaters. Um, now, all this was happening while she was holding on part-time jobs as a vet assistant, chambermaid, waitress, and assistant baker. Classic high school lifestyle choices. Um, but it was also during this time, in 1984 to be precise, when the speculative lightning bolt struck. Now, she was on a winter road trip. Her family crammed into their 1977 Chevy Suburban. They had taken a brief refuge from their bleak, wintry trek across Highway 16 in Blue River, British Columbia. She was stretching her legs, wandering through the clapboard shack that passed for a general store, and saw, high atop the shelves of magazines, an issue of Asimov's. Now, this issue featured Connie Willis's story, Blued Moon, and the cover caught her eye, and she bought it. And the next hours were transformative. As her family argued around her, she was transported by Willis's prose into a world of intellectual playfulness and speculative delight. And since then, every Connie Willis book sighting has been indelibly locked into her memory. Other people remember where they were when, when Kennedy was shot. She remembers where she was when she saw the next Connie Willis book. Now, her college career began in 1987 when she attended the University of Alberta, pursuing a degree in English. And it was in this time that the existence of role-playing games came into her awareness. Yes, friends, she may be counted among the ranks of dice rollers, playing in the Champions RPG as trashing cars in Car Wars. God, many, many Sunday afternoons were spent in my college days wrecking cars in Car Wars. Uh, she graduated in 91 and took a variety of jobs, none of them particularly inspiring, until she got a position with a tech company. And this was the first job that allowed her to apply her editorial and literary passions in a meaningful way. And while she was employed there, she secured a certificate in multimedia studies from the University of British Columbia, further refining her creative toolkit. But by now she's in her late 30s, and her creative clock is ticking. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with this phenomenon, it's common among those of us who know we're creative, love some creative art form deeply, but haven't quite gotten around to doing anything about it. As mortality rears its skeletal head, we decide it's time to take steps. And for our guest host, it was the 2005 NaNoWriMo Challenge. She was triumphant and discovered the power of throwing a pillowcase over the head of your demonic inner editor and locking it in the closet. Now, that was followed by attending the Tao's Toolbox Workshop in 2007. And the fact that Connie Willis was one of the presenters at that event is, I'm sure, purely coincidental. Uh, she also started attending conventions, starting with a Doctor Who convention in Edmonton, Alberta. Now, her mundane professional life continued, but she also landed a gig with Chatelaine 
Canada's largest women's magazine, as a columnist on the topic of wine and spirits. Now, this might appear as an interesting blip on her resume, but I think this was significant. I mean, for the first time in her professional career, her work was being regarded on its own merit. Her opinions and how she expressed them became the criteria for success. And over four years, the people of Canada were treated to her unique musings on the topic of wine and spirits. And in those four years, many startling transformations would occur. In 2010, she started to write a story. It is a story about toilets. And while that may not seem particularly romantic, bear with me. We'll, we'll just put that on the shelf for now. Now, in 2011, she was hired as a proposal manager for an architectural design firm, a pivotal role in the firm that drew upon both her creative and leadership skills. Now, we've all had one of those, my God, this is the best job ever moments in our lives, and this was hers. So, when she was laid off in 2013, out of the blue, and on April 1st, for crying out loud, it was devastating. It was a heartbreaking event. And while hardship and crisis are never fun experiences, they do provide fertile ground for transformations. And in this case, it prompted our guest host to pull out that story she had started back in 2010 and give it the focus and commitment it deserved. She wiped the slate clean and started from scratch. Now, at the same time, she and her wife moved from Vancouver to Toronto, another upheaval and transformation for many reasons, although being closer to the Canadian sci-fi community was definitely on the list, uh, further fueling the fires of metamorphosis. And that metamorphosis was comprised of diligent examination and application of everything she had learned through her years of writing and editing, particularly the notion of crafting good scenes. The end result was the marvelous Waters of Versailles, a novella of court intrigue in the French royal palace of 1783 involving indoor plumbing and water elementals. It would be published by Tour in June 2015, edited by the esteemed Ellen Datlow, and appear in a year's best anthology as well as securing our guest host a Nebula nomination. Now, 2015 was actually a really good year for our guest host. Apparently, she had been writing a lot in the previous years because, in addition to Waters of Versailles, in February 2015, The Three Resurrections of Jessica Churchill appeared in Clark's World, was included in several anthologies and year's best collections, and was nominated for a Sturgeon Award. March 2015 saw Good for Grapes being published in the book of New Canadian Noir. November 2015 saw The Gladiator Lie, published in the license-expired anthology of James Bond tales by Cheezine, edited by Madeline Ashby and David Nickel, and just this month saw her The Eye of the Swan appearing as a serial box edition, part of Ellen Kushner's Tremontaine series. Now, friends, I've studied a lot of writers. And it was our guest host who actually helped me realize that while there are some broad similarities of background, there really is only one commonality that can be teased from the life events of the guest hosts we've had on this show. At some point in their life, they gave themselves permission to be a writer. The events that lead up to that and the events that follow are as unique as a fingerprint. But giving yourself authority over your creative pursuits is when the vault opens and possibility spills out like treasure around your feet. 
Now, friends, when she's driving, she always strives to give her passengers the smoothest possible ride. Incidentally, she has the same standards for her fiction. She recently discovered stallion is a very funny word in the context of public readings. And as anyone who follows her Facebook feed will tell you, if this whole writing thing doesn't pan out, she has a brilliant future as an interpretive dancer. Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the round table, Kelly Robson. Kelly, my God, the life, the world has spun into a faceted jewel of awesomeness around you. I am so delighted that we finally found the time to get you on the roundtable and to speak at length about your craft, ma'am. Thank you so much. Oh, well, it's so nice to be here. It's uh, it's terrific. And that was one hell of an introduction. Holy crap. (laughs) Thank you. Any egregious errors in there at all? (laughs) <laughs> oh, you just missed a couple of my publications from that year. I also was published in Asimov Magazine in 2015. Oh my God, what a, what a, what a landmark moment for you, given yeah, your, your it, starting point with Asimov's. Yes, I cried my eyes out when, when Sheila accepted that story. I absolutely bawled. I was in my cubicle at work, and I was uh, silently, I hope, uh, just absolutely <laughs> blubbering. I'll bet. Well, and that's a wonderful affirmation that 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 closing of cycle it almost makes you think there's a pattern to life, you know, when you get right down to it. I really do wonder about that. I wonder about that often. Yeah, I, I think as as we get older, we tend to start seeing as we see more patterns emerging in the world, we start to wonder, am I just seeing those or are those actually there? Really, really, you know, sometimes I think that we actually there is a there is a writer who is manipulating us. Mm. And, and and making very exciting things happen because uh, life should not be this good. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm really grateful that it is. Well, on, on that point, we will agree to disagree because I think life is designed to be awesome. And, and, you have, and you have certainly lived in that dream. Look, I, I don't want to waste any more time, Kelly. I'm going to go ahead and set the clock here. Back in uh, September 2014, you actually wrote a guest post on Alex's blog uh, that was fascinating. One thing in particular that you said in there was that good, clear nonfiction primes my brain for the kind of writing I want to achieve. And that quote right there really kind of caught my attention and I think kind of speaks to your your creative engine as it were. Could you unpack that for us a little bit and give us a sense of what is it about nonfiction that that inspires you to write more speculative work? Hmm. Well, first of all, it's a, a shortcut for research. Okay. Reading uh, really good nonfiction, you just pick up all kinds of really interesting details that you can file away in your idea file. And that gives you topics for future stories, and it gives you details for your current stories, and it's just fantastic. But that isn't quite what I meant, as you know, when I said that it primes my brain to write good, clear fiction. What I think is really, really excellent nonfiction writing and creative nonfiction writing, like I have a, a reverence for the playwright Alan Bennett's nonfiction mm. writing. Okay. He is a magnificent nonfiction writer, beautiful voice. Um, what I think it, it primes you for is, is being able to slip in telling into your story. And we always say, show don't tell, but a story with no telling is a pretty plain thing in my mind. <laughs> so, uh, so I think I think reading nonfiction, if it's really good, it can show you how to tell without without uh, anybody complaining. 
how do you do that? How how? Because you're right. That is an axiom. That is that is a chestnut even of of the writerly set. Show don't tell. How do you tell without becoming an info dump or without becoming pedantic or or just oh my god more information really? <laughs> I think it has to be interesting. Okay. I think it has to be fascinating. And that's where, you know, good nonfiction, we're not talking bad nonfiction. Well, yeah. Good nonfiction writing is, is, is it, it, really, it really shows you how to, how to be interesting when you're telling. As, uh, nonfiction is nothing but telling. Sure. Well, so, okay, let's, uh, let's unpack that for just a little bit. What is good nonfiction for you? Um, well, like I said, Alan Bennett, amazing right. writer, just amazing writer. Is, he's so economical. He can set a scene with just one beautiful sentence, and 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 you know it's not <laughs> as though he's showing off. I, I just I get so excited. I, I'm uh, his latest collection of essays just came out a few days ago, and I'm in the middle of it right now, and I just he, it, my copy is marked up with things that I have uh, underlined. Is it's just he he is absolutely magnificent, and I could just spend the rest of the 20 minutes holding you hostage and just reading it. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll make sure I put a link into this latest collection of essays in the liner notes for the show so, that, so, that, so that fans and listeners can go, okay, I got to find out what's so fabulous about this dude. <laughs> it's called Keeping On, Keeping On. And, uh, and that's pretty cool. But another example is um, this fantastic book called Debt, the first 5,000 years, hmm. which is written by a gentleman whose name I can't pull of my brain right now, but it's about the history of economics in the world. Okay. And that writer is just, he is absolutely magnificent. Uh, basically, he's talking about human societies and human societal evolution and the idea of value, what is value, and how do we interact with each other economically? And this is a really important question for world building, sure. because in my opinion, world building is nothing if you don't have the economics down. See, that was that was that was my next question on down in the 20 minutes. And, and I, I would very much like to unpack that uh, further. I, let me just talk back a little bit, because I think we just struck on something very interesting. The, the, the same qualities of good nonfiction are actually kind of the same qualities of good fiction in that the value that's being presented to you of the narrative, whether it's true or false, false, no, fictional, factual or fictional, uh, must be intimate. It must be personal to the reader. And mm -hmm. therefore the writer must uh, ensure that the value, that the reader is invested in the outcome of whatever they're presenting to them, whether it's actual fact or fiction. Mm -hmm, for sure. And to convey to your audience, convey to your readers that you're not wasting their time, that there's going to be a payoff. Stick with me through this. Mm, okay. Trust me, there's going to be a payoff. And that um, tactic is something we could probably do a whole 20 minutes on all by itself. Yeah. Um, I, I actually want to kind of get out of the way and let Marie talk because Marie brings a, a wonderful aesthetic and sensibility to the roundtable question set. So Marie, what what, uh, what questions do you have for Kelly? <laughs> You know, I have so many questions for Kelly. I find you absolutely fascinating, which I think I've made clear possibly in an awkward fashion to you in person in the past. <laughs> 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 awkwardness. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, one of the things that really resonated with me that I, I've read from you recently, it was actually a piece of nonfiction in Clark's world, where you were talking about being a late bloomer, mm-hmm. uh, how your publishing journey led you to, to some milestones that happened later in life than what would be the, the ideal perception. And you mentioned in that article, I, I feel like I'm giving you a nice uh, softball here. <laughs> I hope <laughs> you mentioned in your article that self-doubt, although very detrimental at certain points, in the end turned out to be a very positive part of your development, especially once, as, as Dave mentioned in your stockrish intro, especially once you managed to overcome it. But that self-doubt is something that I think every writer goes through and struggles with continuously. And you brought so much wisdom to that. Talk to us a little bit about your, your long-term relationship with self-doubt. Ooh, we! Oh my gosh! <laughs> the, the sofa is right over there, Miss Robson. Please sit yourself down. Tell us about your mother. Yes, yes. Have some wine. Have some wine. <laughs> Where is my wine? My goodness! Oh, well, the tea will have to do. Uh, yeah. Well, Alex and I, my wife, you know, Alex mm-hmm. Delamont. Mm-hmm. Alex is an amazingly self-confident person. She has always known exactly who she is and what she wants to do and has always uh, instilled everything that she does in this, this sense of, of rightness and, and moving through the world without questioning herself. And she has and a marvelous it, swagger. <laughs> she does have a marvelous swagger and she's also a very, very sweet and gentle person at the same time, which, you know, keeps us from wanting to, you know, tire up and (laughs) (laughs) give her a little lecture about humility. Uh, But, um, you know, I've never been that way. I, from the very earliest years of my life, I've just not had the sense that anything that I was doing was anything other than than the wrong thing. Uh, And that, that is debilitating for a writer. Because as you said earlier in your intro, uh, we have to give ourselves permission to call ourselves writer. We have to give ourselves permission to, to take that authority and to take that initiative. And if we don't have that, we can't actually produce anything. Mm-hmm. Um, being, an, being an artist of any kind is a really selfish thing. Nobody is asking us to be artists. Nobody is going to give us permission or say, listen, honey, I really want to hear the inner workings of your mind. <laughs> we have to force that on people and we have to make them trust that it's worthwhile listening to us. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Kelly Robson after this brief promotional break. 2016 marks Pseudopod's 10th Halloween. It's a dead man's party and we have a lot of reasons to celebrate with you. Just about this time in 2013, we were weeks from shutting our doors and turning the lights off. Thanks to our donors and subscribers, we not only survived, but grew. While we have always paid our authors, over the last two years we have raised our pay for original fiction to professional rates. Now we're asking listeners like you to help chip in so we can compensate all our content creators. We want you to have a stake in the world's longest-running horror fiction podcast. 
As part of this campaign, we're going to be raising the capital to pay our narrators for a number of years. Since the primary mission at Pseudopod is the promotion and preservation of the short horror fiction format, we want to assemble a companion anthology to celebrate what we've done over the last decade. This includes reprints of stories we've run as episodes of Pseudopod, as well as some original fiction from authors we've run a number of times. We are also working with the fine folks at Horror and Clay to produce a tiki mug that celebrates a decade with Pseudopod. Links will be in the show notes. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Kelly Robson. It's nice that you acknowledged it so effortlessly in that article, which I really recommend people go check out on Clark's World. Um, but you, but you acknowledged it in a very honest way that generally writers don't do when it comes to something that is is typically seen as uh, as a handicap, mm. as something that would stop you from producing. Because when yeah. you think about it, any any artistic uh, initiative on a person's part, th- there's there's an element of arrogance built into that you know you kind of have to have some level of thought that what i have to say podcasting is certainly the highest level of arrogance i can tell you (laughs) (laughs) there must be some level of some part of you that thinks that what you have to say and the way you say it is somehow relevant or significant or even worthwhile for someone else's Mm -hmm. time that does require a fair bit of arrogance and that i have found consistently is not the case in most uh, representatives at least in the in the speculative fiction mode no for sure you're absolutely right so overcoming that i'm sure every time every person we speak to about that would have a different way that that happened either it was the impetus of time uh, and and was that was that i i kind of inferred uh, uh, the the creative ticking clock Kelly, was that was that an accurate assessment of what you were going through at that time? Yeah, it sure was. It was absolutely accurate. I um, I, I literally, literally, there was a ticking clock, or you know, not literally. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I at some point I just realized that if I got to the end of my life and I had never given writing a true hard real honest try that it would be the biggest regret of my life whether i fail or whether i succeed didn't really matter what mattered was the trying the honest trying see and i think that's the key right there i think if you scrape away all the things that lead to that moment that there there is a discovery of it's not not caring but it's not caring about necessarily outcomes Mm -mm. that you have to immerse yourself in this craft Come hell or high water, come come condemnation or glory, it doesn't matter. If you have that drive, if, if you love this concept of, of writing so much that you will do it and, and damn the torpedoes full steam ahead, then that's that that gives you solid footing to build upon and that not caring of outcomes i think is is, is a critical component for that because that can be crippling if your if the validation of your work must come from outside sources yeah and and also if we analyze it too much too early i think that can be really difficult mm-hmm. i think that there is a point at which we all we need to do is just produce and produce crap and just get the words out and the thousands and thousands and thousands of crappy words that we will never do anything with. I think one of the worst things 
is the things that I am saddest about when I hear about writers who have been writing the same book or the same story for the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. Right? At some point, you have to let that stuff go. You can't, you, you, we don't learn to write from rewriting. We make writing better by rewriting. We need to rewrite. But I think we learn to write just by drafting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, throttling that inner editor. And, and yeah, I, I, on a personal note, I discovered the same thing when I did NaNoWriMo as you did, that when you, when you, just, when you have to write the words and, and you tell that editor to shut the hell up, uh, uh, the words flow. They do. They do flow. For me, I can't keep up that speed. <laughs> I, I need to slow down for my writing to be uh, good. So um, one of the things that when I started, as you noted in my intro, I, I wiped the slate clean with Waters of Versailles at a time of incredible upheaval for us, where I was out of a job. We were thinking about moving to Toronto. Life had just literally blown apart, okay, figuratively blown apart. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm on um, Parks and Recreation here. Literally. <laughs> we won't judge you, Kelly, I promise. <laughs> Life has had just blown apart, and when I uh, sat down to start rewriting or to start, to start from scratch, Waters of Versailles again, um, with a completely new main character for reasons that are really interesting. I have some secrets to writing to impart to you mm. about that. Mm. With a brand new character and starting to write slowly and a really focus on scene craft. That was the thing. One of the things that was super key for me is to just. For me, slow down. For other people, it might be speed up. There are no orthodoxies. I couldn't agree more. Uh, uh, if you if you try and hold yourself to some uh, uh, external template of structure, uh, you're 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 stifling your creative voice, the thing that actually yeah. distinguishes you from other writers. Yeah, and and oh, absolutely. And and the only thing that we have that makes us unique is our voice. Mm-hmm. We can't write like anybody else. We can't do it like anybody else does. If we do, nobody will want it. The only value that I bring to the world as an artist, that Marie does, that Dave does, that anyone does, is is their unique take on the world. Mm-hmm. And that is something you can't lose. Well, and that's it's why so people important. read. I think was to find a a, a different perspective, a different facet of the world that is not wired into that, that resonates to something they, they believe or feel, but that isn't something in their specific awareness. So, so by neutering yourself, uh, uh, your voice, you're effectively (laughs) denying the reader the very thing they want to read. Exactly. Exactly. Especially specific people, right? Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. read to find out things that we don't know. We don't read to have our prejudices confirmed. Well, yeah. most of us. That's what. Yeah. <laughs> most of us. There, 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 there is there is a, a level of I want to be comforted by someone else's vision. Mm. I think. Mm. And and in that regard, uh, I, I think. And and people read for a hundred different reasons. A hundred different readers read for a hundred different reasons. Uh, so this isn't a, a blanket statement. But there is a God. I love a good caper story. Give me a good <laughs> caper story. You know. And yeah. and while the 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 ideology of that may not necessarily be affirming of society in general, there is a prejudice wired into my taste that I would like affirmed. 
Yeah, sure. That makes sense. So, but if that if that caper story is exactly the same as every other caper story you've ever read, you're not going to be happy. Good point. Excellent point. Yep. So very true. All right, dish with those character details. You said you had secrets. We want secrets yeah. about characters. <laughs> so here's here's the secret, and this I got from uh, Stephen Barnes, the great writer Stephen Barnes, mm-hmm. at uh, Oricon in Oregon, in Portland, Oregon, in November of 2012. You know, this is the reason why we go to cons and that we why we go to panels is we hope that somebody will drop a nugget that will resonate with <laughs> us and make us the perfect writer that we always hoped we could be. Right. Uh, Stephen Barnes, in this writing panel, said, you approach a story either with an idea of the story that you're going to tell or the character that you want to tell a story about. Usually that's how we start out when we get a story idea, when we get a story bunny. It's either story or character. He said, to develop that, if the story bunny that you've got is the, the story or the problem, ask yourself, what exactly is that problem and who is the worst person to give that problem to? <laughs> and there, once you've got that developed, you've got your conflict and you've got your story. If you are starting with character, ask yourself, who is this character? Who are they? And what is the worst thing that can possibly happen to them? And Lois McMaster Bujold's corollary to that is, and how can I make them do it to themselves? Ooh, evil. (laughs) I like that. That's brilliant. So so this is the key because I have been working on Waters of Versailles and it hadn't been, you know, the drafts are ridiculous. They're so bad. Um, I had been working on Waters of Versailles and I was really excited about this, the story concept that I had. I was really excited about the problem, the problem of this very powerful water spirit being on the loose in the Palace of Versailles. But I had given that problem to the wrong character. And there was absolutely no reason why the, the main character, as I started, as I started when I first drafted the story, there's no reason why that main character couldn't have solved that problem on about page six of the story. <laughs> oh, so there was there was no story at that point. So I had to when Stephen Barnes gave me this piece of advice or gave the room this piece of advice, I realized that I needed to change my main character, that he needed to be a different person than I'd originally originally planned for him to be. That's brilliant uh, advice. Because I think really when you think about it, people who come up with story bunnies, and I love that term, I'm going to use that for a long time, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, those bunnies really kind of fall into those two categories of either situation or person. And inevitably, the, the, the gap then in that story, Bunny, is if it's the situation, then who's doing it? And if it's the person, then what are they doing? And that gives you a wonderful uh, uh, portal to explore the absolute appropriate uh, fulfillment of whatever is missing from your current story, Bunny. That's awesome. Yeah, I think it really made the difference for me. Yeah. So uh, I highly recommend every writer... <laughs> to take this advice and tattoo it on the inside of their arm. Very cool. I, we're yeah. running out of time, but I did want to ask you, uh, uh, in addition to the, the secrets of character that you've imparted, thank you for that. Um, I, I can only imagine that as you were digging in to Waters of Versailles and you, you were specifically paying attention to the scene craft, um, I can only assume you you teased out some some secrets or some discoveries about scenecraft in that intensive work. Could you share some of those with us? 
Well, what I, I came to realize, and, and actually this, um, this probably came from a uh, con panel as well, and I can't remember which con, I can't remember who said it. So They all kind of blur together you. after a while. Yeah, they do. Well, thank you, wonderful writer, whoever told, said this, is that you should treat each scene like its own short story. Hmm. Each scene has to have its own hook and it has to have its own conclusion. And each scene should resolve something. It should be, you should resolve something, but you should also leave the reader with a question at the end. And that leads them into the next scene. So that's what I try to do. And when I focus on that, the writing is a lot easier because then I'm looking at each scene as its own sort of component in a story and it makes revision a lot easier because if something's not working usually it's not working in a specific scene it's not usually work not working you know throughout the whole story so so that basically gives you a criteria of of assessment so when you are in that revision process after you've gone through the first draft and you're looking does this scene work you have a, a, a codified set of criteria that allows you to assess it's not working why not oh i i haven't resolved anything or i haven't raised right. a question or whatever yeah or the problem the problem in this scene just isn't much of a problem i'm i'm killing <laughs> myself over one of those right now i have a scene in the middle of the uh, novella that i'm currently revising and, uh, you know, this scene is not doing its job. This scene is supposed to be a fork, and instead it's a spoon. It's a spoon. And I need a fork <laughs> at this point. So... Because cutlery metaphors are very appropriate, as we've discovered many times here on the roundtable. Uh, oh, is that right? <laughs> oh, my, yes. We're always trying to sharpen our craft and hone our craft. And and we've decided that we're all basically like axe murderers, just wanting to have sharp, pointy things. <laughs> That's that, fantastic. Well, I'm going to think of this scene as a fork now, and I'm going to make sure that it has enough points on it. There you go. There you go. Awesome. Make really good and pointy, and then I'm going to stab it. Stab it. Stab the reader <laughs> with, with the scene. Make them bleed. Oh, God, I love it. Well, guys, I, I hate to say it, but the, 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 the clock has actually taken up a fork and a knife uh, and is standing atop a, a, a commode uh, glaring at me with, with malicious intent, I can see. And there's something burbling uh, uh, underneath the, the, the lid of the commode. I don't want to know what it is. I can only assume that this means we have exceeded our time allotment for our 20 minutes with, as we always do. Uh, and it's always a heartbreak because, Kelly, this has been marvelous. Thank you so much for making the time. Uh, it has been a genuine delight, ma'am. And it has been an absolute delight for me as well. Thank you so much, Dave and Marie. <laughs> You're very kind. Thank, Thank you. you. Marie, wow, there was there was some writerly goodness. There was some there were some pearls cast before us over that last 20-esque minutes. Uh, what what are you what are you packing up and tucking into your writerly toolkit, ma'am? You know, I think there's some like obvious takeaways here, like the the golden nuggets that Kelly shared with us on oh, how to yes. review and think. I mean, there there is no doubt I will take those away. But all in all, the what I think I'll take away as an overarching lesson, if you will. So it's not the fork or the spoon. It's like the whole plate I'm running away with at this point. Uh, is that <laughs> the way that Kelly obviously approaches? 
opportunities like conventions and panels and even reading is that there is a nugget that she might find in there and she's willing to go through a lot of sitting down, a lot of reading and a lot of being patient and waiting for those nuggets to find her because they might really sharpen uh, <laughs> that her craft and help her finish her next story too. So I absolutely love that approach. It's uh, it's a very wholesome one and it also mm-hmm. speaks to constant self-development, which I'm a big fan of when it comes to writing especially. So that, I think that's the nugget, the, the whole plate I'm going to run away with. Okay, awesome. And, and you know, you're right. Patience is very difficult, especially I think in this day and age when mm-hmm. the, the publication cycle and the creative cycle has been compressed so much by... Uh, by social media, by the internet, ebooks, so on and so forth. What what used to be a process that would take quite literally years has been compressed down to taking months or even in some cases weeks. And with that acceleration of time, the 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 sense that oh god, I'm not doing this quick enough. I need to do it quicker. I can't waste time waiting for something or writing a poor first draft. It must be perfect the first time out. And that is that is crippling. I think taking a taking a good long swig on the tea or the water or the whiskey, whatever calms your ass down, uh, is, is going to be a good thing for a creative person to not be so manic in the pursuit of excellence. Yeah, exactly. And to understand that not everything is about immediate gratification and that when somebody mentions, you know, there's always that pursuit for overnight success. It's like overnight success hardly means that it's overnight workload as (laughs) well. It's it comes after years. So, yeah, I like that. I love that. Yeah, I do, too. I do too. For for me, it was the the conversation about nonfiction and fiction, and I'm always I'm always looking for. I'm not sure how to describe. It. I'm looking for truths of storytelling. Mm-hmm. This is this is something that I that I, I am constantly in search of. And, and the roundtable has been an awesome uh, expedition into that realm of, of literary archaeology. But uh, uh, the notion, you know, you think of nonfiction and fiction as two very different things, and ultimately they aren't. Uh, because good nonfiction and good fiction both succeed for the same reasons. Uh, and that discovery during the conversation that unless the, the reader is invested, unless the writer has given the reader a reason, that's a tough sentence to say, <laughs> to be invested uh, in, in whatever information or story they're presenting, then there's no reason for the reader to engage. There's no benefit to be derived. And I think that's important. I'm, I'm again. I find myself saying this time and again. I'm not sure how specifically, uh, uh, and and as is so often the case with a quote truth, uh, yet to find out how it's going to actually apply in my own writing and my own creative endeavors. Uh, but it, it resonated strongly for me, so I'm tucking that deeply into my writer's toolbox. So beautiful. Thank I mean, you. That's a good one. Yeah, I yeah. think so too. I think so too. <laughs> and, and friends. Uh, uh, that that was a fabulous conversation. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you got the the big nuggets and hopefully some of the shadowed ones as well, and are hoarding them like smog in your own writerly cave as you should. Um, <laughs> but here's the fabulosity of the roundtable. Come back in a week. 
And we're going to have Kelly back, we're going to have Marie back, myself, and we're going to introduce into the mix a courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous guest writer, who is going to lay before us the seed, the, the, the bare germ, the concept of a story, and invite us into a brainstorming arena of awesomeness, where we will brainstorm the crap out of this thing and, and explore story on a very, very specific and intimate level. And it's going to be fabulous as it always is, but it is seven days. It's a long time to wait, and I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. Marie, you got to help us out here. Uh, Seven days. What can our listeners do that will allow that seven days to be productive, fruitful, and and swift on on the heels of Hyperion? That is a tough one because those will be long seven days. I mean, let's let's just be honest here. Mm -hmm. But what I'd like to propose is for those of you who follow Kelly on social media, you will fully resonate with this. And and Dave did mention it. Um, Kelly likes to dance. And I think from hearing Kelly speak, um, and I'm just going to put words into her mouth right now. I think it's a freeing activity for synapses as well for developing story. So I'm just going to put that in her mouth. She can call me off on social media if I'm completely wrong. But what I'm going to say is take a few minutes each day and just dance and, and loosen up those brain Muscles. And it's okay if she can't dance. I I can't dance, and I'm I'm totally a dancer. Dance like nobody's anyways. looking. Yeah, and and if they're looking, you know what? And and this is totally R-rated, so I can say this. Fuck them. Fuck them. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so enjoy it and let yourself be free and loose and then go back to your story. Well, and that's that's good advice on multiple levels. I have found, as we all have, that if you sit in front of the computer for too damn long, your brain atrophies. Uh, you got to get up and get away. And, and also pursuing other forms of creative expression, even intimate personal ones like dancing in your bathroom where no one can see you. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that is a, a not only a liberation, but it's also a catalyst for other, I will use the term juices liberally, uh, uh, but creative <laughs> fluids, <laughs> catalyst sparks, currents, that's a better one, creative currents that will flow and unlock. Oh, God, we've totally rocked that R rating today. <laughs> Friends, come back in seven days. It's going to be fabulous. Do not miss it. Uh, uh, so I will tell you, as I always do, uh, uh, you find what you're looking for. This is this is advice from, from long experience. So if you look for the wow, look for the oh my God, look for the oh hell yeah. If you look for it, you find it. It's out there. Just, just sink your green teeth into that quest to find it and you will. We'll be back in seven days, friends. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook, 
at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.